Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode, I interview Riles, who hates labels, but still identifies himself as a hedonist, a financial technologist with 10 plus years in big banking experience. He's also a cynic, a tinkerer, and a practicing philosopher. He's also an artificial intelligence enthusiast, a hater of big egos, a contrarian, and says that he's in a crossroads in his life and opposes a unified theory of the universe or philosophy. So again, this is Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. Financial technologist, cynic, 10 plus years of big banking experience, contrarian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, MC Squared. It's good to be here. So you're you're into philosophy. We've talked a little bit on the pre-show. Um, what's some of your philosophical influences? You've read some philosophy in the past. Um when you were younger or when you were in school and have you done some readings recently, what, what draws you to philosophy and what's some of your influences? Yeah, I, I got started with philosophy at a pretty young age. I think um, in elementary school actually is when I started or had my first introduction with philosophy. I had a teacher and uh, I think I was selected for like a gifted and talented program. They called it. And Whoa, a teacher humble that brag, just, a humble brag. This, this is a gift. Oh, no. This I, is a gifted scholar like, uh, we brought on Necessary Illusions. I did not realize. Continue. Yeah, I don't know. The internet tells me that a lot of gifted and talented kids are having a lot of mental health issues and struggles out there in the world. So who knows what the, if the criteria was good for that selection. Um, but yeah, this teacher, she, she really introduced me to philosophical thinking. And like the way she taught her class was like it was all about like how do you learn about the world and how do you solve problems and how do you work together and less about like English, math, or history. Um, so from a very young age, yeah, like she got me interested in like a philosophical life. And I think we read some like some of the Greeks at some point. Um, but then after that, I didn't get back into it until college. And, and some like my first introduction, some like Far Eastern uh, philosophy. I think that was the name of the course actually that I took. Um, that got me into some like Confucianism, Taoism, some of the uh, Jainism, some of the things that I just hadn't been exposed to before. And then, you know, after the pandemic, I, I got more into just reading some of the uh, the guys I've heard about or heard other people talk about. Um, that I like Emile Sharon, uh, Klein, Camus. Um, and I, I think people would classify at least Sharon and Camus, I think, as existentialists. 
Um, so what's that? Really talk just, about that. What's, what's existentialism? Talk about that school of thought. I, I can't. I'm not a, a well-versed existentialist. Or, or That's where I lack in my philosophical life. Is what does it mean to you, though, to exist? What does it mean to exist? What's it mean to you? I, I Well, I think the key thing that I take away from people like Sharon and Camus, uh, if I'm saying their names right, um, is that they're angry that people are trying to have the right philosophy and make a right philosophy for everyone or have a right system instead of trying to live life in a philosophical way and dealing with life in a philosophical way. That's, you had mentioned about um, Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. I'm by no means an expert on either, but I'm very interested in both. But it seems to me like some of the Eastern philosophical stuff in my studies of Zen are kind of more so like be in the moment, that present moment, you know, past, future, and present are all one, you know, and just kind of live your life, um, you know, live, live a Zen kind of life, live a philosophical kind of life. I think Socrates said an unexamined life is not one um, worth living or paraphrasing him, something along those lines. So, um, yeah, what, what do you think about um, a system of philosophy? What do you think the study and practice of philosophy should be and and do you see kind of similarities to Eastern and Western philosophy that I've um, noticed? I haven't done a, in my own head a really a comparison of Eastern and Western philosophy kind of in that aspect. Um, and to be quite honest, I, I forget a lot of what I've learned about the like Taoism, Confucianism, um, except for maybe some of the few major hitting points. But it seemed like uh, both Western and Eastern philosophy, they're – People are all over the place. Like some of it yeah. is, is like very much in Eastern philosophy, there's like Confucianism rooted in order, law, tradition, everyone being in their place and playing their role. Um, I, I see which, like Western philosophy. That's the study that I tend to gravitate towards, the study that I tend to like, although I, I did get pretty deep in some Zen writings and readings and whatnot, but I haven't done as much Eastern philosophy as of late, but the way I see it, you know, kind of Eastern philosophy is, you know, just trying to exist, just be, you know, you just, you are like, uh, some of the Zen stuff. If you're trying to think about Zen, you're no longer, you, you can't learn about it. You know, it just is like to live, um, and to just, you know, kind of exist and to take it all in and to let your senses help you guide the way. And maybe your thinking and thought process, thought processes help you guide the way. I think Eastern philosophy is a lot of um, maybe meditation, being lost in thought, always comes back to kind of find your breath, be your breath. Uh, and then Western philosophy, and I've had some, I definitely have some influences, and this is not a podcast about my philosophical influences or, you know, my, my favorite areas of study. This is a podcast about you, Riles. But um, I think Western philosophy, so philosophy to me is more like question everything. You know, what like past, present, and future is one in terms of like Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy. What is past? Does it exist? You know, uh, do we change? How, is, how does things change over time? What is time? What is infinity? You know, kind of like questioning everything, trying to break it down and, you know, ask questions about it, analyze it. And sometimes it gets to the point where it's incoherent. And I think that that is where Descartes uh, comes in. One of my favorite philosophers, he kind of broke it down into everything is either mind 
or body. Everything is either in your mind, you think it, or body is everything outside of mind. So your arms, your leg, your heart, that's body. But the pictures in your mind, you know, I'm looking at a screen right now, right? So it's kind of like my brain is using data from my eyes to recreate me on a screen, looking at you on a screen, talking about philosophy. So um, I think the mind is your... Uh, I guess a creation, you know, that's done taking in all of your senses and the body is everything outside of mine, including this table that my laptop is sitting on. What is that table made up of, you know, individual atoms, quartz, you know, all those sorts of things that we kind of uh, get into when we're studying uh, material science, physics, quantum physics, all those sorts of things. And I think that, uh, yeah, that's, that's more the, the, I guess the discipline of, um, philosophy that I lean towards is more of that Western philosophy question everything, you know, what is it to question? Was it, was it, what is it to exist? Whereas again, maybe getting back into Zen, if you're trying to think about Zen and learn what Zen is, you're no longer in in Zen, you know, you're no longer in that, uh, I don't know that, um, flow or whatever. I think that's like a psychological term, you know, where you're just kind of, you're in a good state of flow. You're just being, you're just existing, you know, you're, you're using your brain, but you're not really, um, it's just, it's just kind of like a good state to kind of, to learn and to take it all in and to not think about what are, what are you doing, but you're kind of a little bit lost in thought kind of thing. Um, I think I'm a little bit rambling there, but yeah. What do you, what do you think about all that stuff? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to break down Eastern Western philosophies and schools of thought. It's it's not easy, well, but I definitely see some differences for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, even with the example you're using of Zen, like that's one of the like I guess traditionally Eastern or, or philosophies that just in general I'm less familiar with. But um, it sounds Zen sounds very different to me than like Taoism or Confucianism, and where like I, I guess in my mind I think of it more as the Western philosophy has been trying to find the right answer to a lot of questions and Eastern philosophy is trying to help people know the right way to live. In in some cases, like um, it, it, I think it's much more about like in Eastern philosophy, it's, it seems like it's much older too, but I, I don't know you could have someone fact check me on this. Or you can I think Aristotle. Out. Yeah. I mean, I think Aristotle might be, and I, of course there's philosophers that came before Aristotle and that's now we're getting into prehistory and stuff and some of the sourcing. You Is know, Aristotle be... the oldest in history? Like, No, there's know. more. Oh, and, I mean, Socrates and Plato came before Aristotle, but that's Did what I'm thinking is a classic. Or Confucius? Uh, uh, yeah, I think Confucius, I'm talking about Western philosophy. Yeah, I think I, I would, we'd have to check the dates. I can pull out my phone right no, now. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think yeah. like. But like, I, I think Western philosophy dates back to like Aristotle, Plato, the ancient Greeks. In, in terms of Eastern philosophy, uh, let's see how far back. Um, well, yeah, you can you can get to it. But go ahead. You can talk about it, but I'll see if let's see how far definitely, back Confucius goes. Yeah, there's definitely differences. I just I think like it's a much older world, and maybe they have had a philosophical tradition going longer, more more wars. Uh, so about the same time period, older like, period. So it looks like Confucius, five fifty one BC. It's right around the time of Aristotle and the ancient Greeks. So 
perhaps Eastern and Western philosophy is about the same age. You know, well, I, I, we, I think it's, neither it's of us about... are philosophical experts here, so we're probably going to have some, maybe some philosophy PhDs fact check us and think that this uh, whole entire conversation is incoherent. But I think we are. We're, we're trying to practice philosophy right now as we kind of study it, break it down, and uh, use it to help understand our world. Don't you? Isn't that kind of what you were saying in the pre-show? Is what you think philosophy should be? the purpose of philosophy should be yeah exactly i I think philosophy and teaching philosophy and having the idea of philosophy is about trying to like live your life and have systems that help you make decisions that help you figure out your goals in your life and help you do it in a way that you can feel satisfied with and that you don't feel regret about is Um, there is there anything that's universal to philosophy is there things that um maybe apply in all systems of thought maybe to all people or do you think philosophy is more individual in nature because i think part of my study in philosophy is trying to find those universal things those timeless morsels of knowledge that always apply you know from the day day of confucius and aristotle and plato and all the all the all the uh, the classics uh, of, of of a bygone era to today because i think a lot of, of things that some of these older philosophers these ancient philosophers were talking about still apply so what do you think about universality uh, and thought processes and philosophy in general well when i yeah like I, I think if you study like some philosophy and start learning the history you see a history of people with a lot of free time and a lot of ego trying to come up with a system to explain or to best explain how to live in this world or best explain why the world is the way it is or why science and math play out the way they do. Um, but well, yeah, so I see, a, you I see a lot of ego. I see people from elevated classes with free time on their hands when other people didn't have free time. Um, what is the ego? The ego. That, that's the thing inside you that says, I am the one who needs to find a right philosophy and I need to share that with people. That's an ego right there, right? I think the nirvana is like a, a sense where you just exist. You just be, you know, you kind of lose all ego. Um, do you think that's possible uh, as a human being? Can you <laughs> lose your ego or is that, is that just part of, uh, is that even something we'd want to do? I mean, I think part of the ego keeps us alive, doesn't it? Uh, I don't know if ego keeps us alive. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that sense of ego inside someone one sense of contributes worth it. and belonging and staying. What's the reason to keep going? You know, what's the well, reason? Ego. To ego has nothing to do with my sense of worth. I, I don't know if it does for you. I, my, I try to separate my ego from my sense of worth if I can, because I have a tremendous uh, outside narcissist, outsized narcissistic ego at times that. Uh, I, I try control. I think we all are <laughs> all trying to work through it, don't you? I think we all. Yeah. 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 But like ego is like, ego is like the owner of a sports team in America in 2023. And they're like, you know, I don't want to spend yeah. this or I'm going to cut the best player because he makes too much money. But that team now has been, it should be part owned by like the city because they paid for three stadiums and $2 billion over the year. They, all their taxes do the upkeep. Well, yeah, why are we still paying? Like, why why are taxpayers still funding stadiums for these billionaires? Make that make sense to me. <laughs> I, I can't make that make sense to you. I think the um, yeah, I think way, the team, like, the players, like, that's I where think I think should of be part ego, ownership. Like, like the whole yeah, like the whole city, like 
let's say uh, like um, Dallas Cowboys, right? Like at this point, the Cowboys belong to Dallas, not to Jerry Jones, even though on paper that he's, you know, still belongs to Jerry Jones and our legal system belongs to Jerry Jones. But the people of Dallas are the ones who have gone to all the games, bought all the products and have perpetuated their business for however many years they've been going. Right. So that's a capitalist ownership model. I mean, the capitalism works because there's this private class of owners that oh, own yeah. the businesses and they make the decisions and they, they create typically the vehicles of capitalism, which are corporations and they create these hierarchies, putting some above others and decision-making is always top down. So the richest, the one that has the most ownership stake makes all the decisions and somewhere along the way, perhaps you can rent yourself to someone like an owner of a sports franchise or a CEO of a, uh, a corporation and rent yourself to uh, make a living and make a subsistence or to, to gain your subsistence just to, just to get by. You follow orders from the people, from the person above you and the person below you, you step on their neck if they're not doing the right job. I mean, that's kind of the cutthroat um, nature that I see it of the capitalist system, which leads me to my next point is if I'm trying to piece together some of these things that you had talked about. Working together, you know, what's the best way to structure society? Working together. I think I wrote down solidarity when you were talking. I think that would be a great way. Instead of this competition, uh, you know, where we're supposed to, you know, step on the, the neck of the person below us because we always have to uh, grow. There must always be economic growth. We must you know, be focused on the next quarter. We must, we must sell more widgets. We must, we must sell more units. We must take in more revenue, more dollars. And no matter what, at the expense of our lives, at the expense of the environment, at the expense of our competition, you know, maybe the, the business down the street that's trying to do the same thing and trying to just buy and, you know, have a house and a car and, and make enough food to put on the table to feed their family, you know? So what of, what of the structure of society, what of the capitalist system you had mentioned, uh, working together and i agree solidarity i think that i would like a system where people um, are more freely able to associate themselves and work together than the current system we both find ourselves in the current machine that we're both a part of well i i don't know if i said anything about solidarity or if that's something you said something about working together and that's all i see so that's what i that's what solidarity I, I means to me yeah but i was answering a question about ego using an example i think we've transitioned to something else here um but in, in general, if we're talking about like socio-political economic systems, like, yeah, like, I'm that's what I like to talk about unnecessary illusions. That's what we like to oh, talk I about. Know. Yeah. It seems, it seems to me anyway, that capitalism is running its course and many people are, are growing very tired of it. I guess my example of ego fits right into that. Um, yeah. I think that, I think that the capitalist system is based on, um, you know, like self-interest, like you know, trying to get richer, you know, trying to stuff right, more money right, in your like, pockets and you don't care about the, the widow down the street. That's, you know, uh, it's not that you, you don't care. It's that you care about yourself more and your prosperity more. And in the system we're in right now, like there's less incentive to care about others as much as yourself or, and there's not enough safety for oneself. Um, you know, if you mess up or make mistakes, that really allows you the comfort to care for others as much as you might want to. Um, and I, like I go, I think ego drives that, right? Like a, a lot of like why people keep our system in place with hating it is like somewhere deep down inside. I believe a lot of people think like 
well, maybe I can be the billionaire one day. One, That's one, it. One day. Maybe That's I it. can make it. There's, maybe there's a one a in a billion chance you can be a billionaire. Down there. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, and instead of instead of making a nice quality of life for everyone, we're all in this competitive world, in this capitalist system, and many of us are indoctrinated with propaganda that maybe one day I can be at the top of that corporation. Maybe yeah, one I day think- I can own that sports team you know well and i think they they like the and uh, well, you know with imperialism giving rise to the rise of consumerism consumerism in america creates a pretty decent life for people who might not be that high up the economic pole like right in the middle like it might seem like a struggle for us here at times but like compared to a lot of let's say the the median socioeconomic families in you're talking about us, though, right? As Americans, yeah, saying, like, you're talking us about us as Americans. Americans. What about people like we in have Indonesia, it. you know, for example, that make Nike it's, shoes that work for twelve cents a day, stitching together, together shoes that you and I can wear on our feet? I mean, sure, uh, as as well, maybe well, working class happen? Americans, well, we have a nice life. But what about the service region in the global South that makes our lifestyle um, the way it is, well, as, as good as it is? I don't I mean, we are living in, a, in the, in the only world superpower right now. So we have a pretty decent life. Of course, it could be a lot better. But what about the people in, the, in our path of imperialism? What about the people that, you know, of the global south that make this, um, you well, know. That's not what we were talking about yet. Like, why are, you, why are we hopping there? Right? You, but you talked about <laughs> you're having a nice life. And I, no, and I agree. I was... we, have, we have a lot of privileges here as Americans. We're both Americans. But what about the people that sacrificed so much working for well, pennies I a day? I didn't get a full idea or thought out. Go for it. Well, let's go. Let's roll it back a few questions, right? So what were you trying to ask me about my view of the American capitalistic political well, system? How should society be structured? I mean, you had mentioned about the, the cities, you know, maybe owning the sports team. I agree. I think community stakeholders should own oh, the businesses yeah. or – Potentially, maybe the workers should own the businesses and it should be democratically organized or maybe a little bit of community um, ownership, a little bit of workplace ownership, because these businesses are, you know, in local communities. And I kind of go back to the auto example, you know, in, in Detroit, you know, the auto auto capital, which is, has fallen on hard times before those auto plants in Detroit and around, you know, and, and um, businesses all over the Rust Belt closed at one point in time, these towns were centered around these, you know, big, big auto plants and steel plants. And, you know, the, the towns and the people that worked there got their identity from them, you know. So I think that, yeah, maybe the community should have um, not just ownership of sports teams, but potentially all businesses, not just the not just the shareholders of the of whoever owns the most stock. You know, that's what I think, at least. Yeah. And, you know, like, what is that called? Anarcho syndicalism? Anarcho syndicalism. That's what I identify as. With, sure. Uh, Co-ops essentially is, is is replacing corporations and being run and owned. Like that's a, a fine system to me. Um, but how do you handle when co-op number two wants to build? They want to go back to building 1960s cars. No airbags, no emissions filters, and they're going to use every resource that they can get their hands on to do it. And they're going to be violently vicious about getting those resources. That's where the government comes in. I mean, I think eventually I would like the. Um, the, the, the state government agrees with to, them. to dissolve. Well, I, I don't think the government would agree if it was democratically organized. If people were allowed to participate, I don't think it's very uh, difficult to convince people that we right. should have some so safety standards. There. 
Yeah, like if you're saying like if you're saying like let's start over, let's start a new system. Like, I don't think you can just throw everything out and start over. That's not. I the agree way with you. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I guess if someone nuked like an entire country and then hundred years later put fresh people there and said start over, I don't know. That probably wouldn't even work. But like, if you're saying like, what's a shift we can do to this system? That I'd love to see, uh, like, get money, change all the campaign finance laws. Sure. Go back to start. corporations not being able to fund campaigns, individual contributions only, things like that. I agree. Um, That's a good start. That's a reform. I mean, I there's differences between democracy entirely. I'd have direct demo- like we can uh, we can elect people to go and work at Congress for us and collate the bills and file right. the things we need filed. Uh, take make sure all the procedures are followed. But like every vote direct to America. Um, but that. You know, then we have to live with those consequences, right? So, like, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm opening myself up for a, a lot of potential negative consequences or things that will make my life worse than that. But I believe, like, it would be a better, more fair system that we have now where, like, our representatives aren't our representatives and their funding is getting them to take actions that the majority of the people in this country don't want. So I don't think that we have a functioning democracy in the United States. And in fact, Princeton University did a study in 2014 and that they and they declared the United States an oligarchy, Uh, basically that, you know, the more money you have, the more influence you have on politics. And I believe it was something like 70 or 80 percent of the American electorate has virtually no say on the policies made in Washington. So I don't think America is a functioning democracy. Uh, Although I do think our system of government is better than a lot of countries, you know, in the world. And I think we do have a lot of privileges and, um, you know, amazing opportunities available to us as American citizens. But the way I look at it, I'm a a critic and a dissident. I think it could be a lot uh, better. I'm trying to find the areas that I think we can actually change, you know, society and its structure. And I think it starts with the political system. I think that's a big that's a big um, factor in our lives to have a, a functioning political system. Uh, and I think the way to change that is working class representation. I think that the people aren't always going to get it right. And I definitely think the people we have in power right now get it wrong most of the time. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. Uh, most Americans do too, as Congress flirts with single digit approval ratings. So basically oh, yeah. 80 to 90% of the country think that they would uh, easily be pla- uh, replaced by someone in a phone book for the better. At least I, I've thought that at times. But yeah, I think instead right, of randomly man. replacing people, what I would do is real working class representation. And I think that starts in the local community. Maybe your neighbor and you know you, you guys get together and people in your neighborhood get together to, to talk about some ideas. And uh, between you and your neighbor or maybe the members of your workplace, you decide who's going to run you know, this year, who's going to go and speak for us. Uh, what we need is, again, real working class democratic participation. <laughs> what we don't. What we don't need is political elites that do this full time, that get into office funded by uh, CEOs and, um, you know, the corporate wealth and power. And then when they get in there, they do exactly as anyone would expect. They, um, you know, are subservient yeah, to corporate wealth and power. I got a great example for you that I just was listening to today in, in my uh, news. Um, so there is, uh, I believe it's Delaware just passed. Like yeah, corporations clean... can vote in, uh, in elections. I was reading the No, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Finish the thought there, Mr. MC Squared. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, 
uh, what was recently just happened is they passed a law that they tried to pass last year, which was an environmental protection law of some sorts, like a clean energy, clean air type of thing. Um, the difference between last year's version, which they couldn't get passed, and this year's version, which they could get passed with heavy input and support from the Delaware Chamber of Commerce, is that it was a 90% gross reduction in emissions by the state of Delaware by 2050, I believe. And they got it changed to 100% net, which sounds better for marketing, but net can be reached by using offsets instead of eliminating emissions. And basically all the environmental groups are like, some offsets are be fine. You know, some offsets we can live with. We really want to get to the eliminate of these emissions. Um, but it was the Chamber of Commerce stepped right in with the politicians, changed what the people the people wanted which is clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, clean soil to grow their crops in, you know, uh, a nice community they can raise their family in, and they gutted it and replaced it and are using marketing to make it seem like it's a win for the people. We got this clean air, this clean energy bill passed, or this environmental protection bill passed, and they, it's toothless. They gutted it with, with corporations. That's right. And uh, I think that's just a microcosm of the political system we both find ourselves in, a uh, society run by big business. I think we have. Right. And so, like, I think where I differ from you is, like, you're out here trying to encourage people to find some way to, to make this different, like, uh, to some way that we can get it more democratic. And I feel like I have less hope than you, where I kind of look out and go, <laughs> Well, you did uh, describe no, yourself like, as a cynic, right? Change. Yeah, I am. A, I am a cynic. Like I, I look out and see so many of my peers that they either want a god king, or they want complete anarchism and like everyone being individualistic on their own. And I'm like, I like society, and I like society trying to work together, or people in it to work together to try to advance our knowledge or how we treat each other and make us better. So I, I don't know. I don't feel like I fit in with either of the extremes. Well, see, to me, anarchism does not mean chaos, does not mean individualistic. In fact, I consider myself a socialist libertarian, um, if you're going to talk about like classical thought. So anarchism to me is just the anti-statist branch of, the socialist, of socialist thought and ideology. So, um, yeah, the way that I see it, is anarcho-syndicalism, you know, but there could also be anarcho-communism, which would, anarcho-communism would be, over time, the long view, the state dissolves and society is kind of democratically organized around um, the community. But anarcho-syndicalism is more so democratic organization around the workplace. And you can kind of decide and, and pick and choose. Uh, would you rather have society um, organized around the workplace or organized around the community? I think either would be fine by me. But what I don't think and what I don't want is these all-powerful um, nation states with the standing armies and the nuclear missiles, and maybe that can be our next segue to talk about um, nuclear war, uh, yeah, and we both had saw say, what's that? Yeah, I, I would say like the the big problem to me is like I look at the state we're in right now, and I'm like, how do we undo the nation states and the not nuclear arsenals? Easy. And not going to be easy, right? Like I have a hard enough time convincing people to listen to me for ten straight minutes. Like I uh, I don't think I'm going to do very well convincing people. Hey, we need to de-arm. We need to de-escalate. I'd rather support people like you and others who are, are carrying that message. I, I'm, I like to analyze and think and, and write and come back later and support. Like, um, but yeah, it's definitely a topic I want to talk about even more with you. It's like, like, what do we, 
what did we as people living through the possibility of nuclear annihilation want to do about it? All right. You had mentioned uh, nuclear annihilation, you know, and that's big points. <laughs> that's big topics. You know, I think these types of topics need, need to be talked about every single day. Um, that's what we do here on Necessary Illusions. Um, I think the, the main issue that's uh, a couple issues facing mankind right now, the first is nuclear war. And I think that's what we're going to talk about here. Uh, but the second, I just got to mention, is the climate crisis. Right now, we are in a uh, extinction event. Um, you know, life forms are going extinct every single day. Each year is hotter than the last. This is the hottest summer on record. And next summer is surely to be hotter. So there's a number of issues that we must address. Um, and all of these are very, very important. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the the magnitude of the issues facing us, the existential issues, if you want to go back to philosophy, that are facing us. So we must stay grounded. We must address one issue at a time. I think the only way to do it is to democratically um, organize the country and, and join together with um, other people. Um, because alone you can do nothing. But together, with like-minded people and a goal, we can accomplish things. But, um, yeah, the democratic workplace, the democratic community, those are things that I view and th those are things that I um, I think the way that I see anarchism. Anarchism is nothing to do with chaos, but more so how exactly is society structured and run. And I think in the short term, the state uh, can serve a valuable um, purpose to keep us at least safe from concentrated powers and, and corporations. But in the long run, maybe not in my lifetime, hopefully the state dissolves along with corporations uh, and what I would like to see is co-ops and democratic takeover of these corporations. Um, and I think part of the environmental crisis, um, we could take over these oil companies um, and use their technology and similar like some, something like a utility in the short run while we're still um, trying to scale up some of these greener technologies because we're still going to need transportation and we're still going to need oil to heat our homes in many places across the country, even though, you know, some, some regions you know, winters aren't as extreme as they once were, we're still an oil-based economy. So it's going to take time. Uh, and I think the one thing I always like to come back to is um, optimism of will, but pessimism of intellect. Um, so that's what I think. I think a lot of these things, you know, are possible and we can solve them. So where do you get your, you're a cynic though, before we maybe get into nuclear war, where do you get your motivation? Where do you get your purpose from? Where do you draw it from? Because again, it is hard to stay motivated and to stay driven and not get overwhelmed by all the problems facing humanity right now as we speak. Yeah, there, I think there's a few things that help me, like the view of like, we, we live in an absurd world. And life is, just takes place in an absurd environment. Um, so and I think a lot of philosophers have written about like the absurdity of the world and, and the absurd environment. But that's where, like, from seeing uh, how generations before us have dealt with like living in this like nuclear potential apocalypse world, uh, I kind of went a little bit of a different way. I, I leaned into leisure hedonism, really. And, um, so, Tell us about that. Like, Tell us like about feel, that. Yeah, like I feel like I have less ability to impact the socio-political um, systems that we use. I, I, I certainly can vote for who I think is putting forth good ideas, but I'm not going to pick up a, a gun and try to start a revolution. So, so I, I, have to make my, I have to make my life about 
other things. I want to stop so stop you there, though. Does revolution necessarily mean violence? Is revolution and violence, uh, do uh, they, are they one and the same? Can there be a revolution without violence? You said you had to pick up a gun for revolution, but I don't think you do. I think peaceful revolution is a possibility, don't you? Has What, what peaceful revolution has worked? I think the civil rights movement in the 60s, uh, that was a social was revolution. Peaceful for the people getting their asses. You're right. right. The right and the people in power, it's always they're always going to demonstrate violence. Right. Um, now, but, imagine trying to take away a nuke from an angry kid. Like, there's going to be violence. That's the way I see it. But there's only going to be violence if those in power um, don't give up their power. Uh, yeah, I don't right? think they're but, going to. So, like, I don't think, like, your vision is really possible unless you convince people that find and desire power not to find and desire power, which oh. is really tough, I think. I don't think I have to convince the people in power. I think I have to convince everyone else. We're ruled over by a tiny segment of the population. Less than 1% control well, our yeah. lives. Let's, if, can we be clear? Are you trying to, like, say, like, the new government for the United States or the whole world here? Because it seems like you bounce back and forth between speaking locally or in the United States versus the whole world. I want an international system that's based in local communities with loose affiliation and, and, um, right. You know, right. Right. Yeah. So like, how do we, I don't like, want a one power. Like, how do you go about the, Yeah, no, I agree with you. So like, let's say like me and you are embarking together and tomorrow's the first day we're going to try to change the systems that we live in for the better. Like, like, which one are you starting with? Are you starting with like first? Okay, I'm gonna have I'm to gonna... get thousands of other people that agree with me, and we're gonna have to start there in my local community. That's what I think. But right now, if it's just me and you, we can do absolutely nothing to change the world. Nothing. But right. if we organize with others, maybe five or ten or a hundred or a couple thousand more, all of a sudden, yeah, we can slowly influence that change. But it's not a top-down change that I'm looking for. It's a bottom-up change, and the first way to um, start with yeah, that bottom up change is to convince people uh, that my ideas are the right way to go about doing things. Maybe they're not. Maybe I need to talk with other people and think of new ideas. That's part of what I'm doing with you right now. Yeah, I, I just I, I agree with you. Like, yeah, like me and you, we're not going to be able to do anything. I'm, I was just asking your opinion. Like, where would you want to start? Like, like we got to be in and outside the system. I mean, outside the system is necessary illusions. I'm trying to get people on and have a discussion and get some new ideas out there. Inside the system would be me personally running for political office, whether it's in my local community or whether it's in my state or whether it's in my federal government or potentially, you know, maybe joining with someone in their campaign to help them get elected. So it's going to have to take place inside and outside the system. But we got to have representation, work, real working class representation in our local communities, in our states and in the federal government. Otherwise, um, we're, we're going to get the same thing, which is the status quo, crap in, crap out, and a, a political system that's an oligarchy or potentially a plutocracy or a kleptocracy, which all mean similar things to me, basically um, government by the rich for the rich. Yeah, so, so you have... Well, like you said, campaign finance reform, 100%. That's one way to get the money out yeah, of politics. That's, that's... It takes $7 billion to run for president, probably more next election cycle. I don't have that kind of cheese laying around, do you? No, I, I certainly don't. Um, and I, I agree with a lot of the, the nature of what you're saying. Like, I, I do think change, if we want it to be nonviolent, takes time. And, and I don't want violent change. I, I, the I, thing I, that I don't understand are like that you like that people I think are going to have a hard time of convincing people with is that some system is better 
and you get them to overcome their fear of giving up the current, giving up the current system, the current pleasures, the current niceties or whatever, safety let, let me, to let try me, a new this, system. This is a great transition. I agree with you. Part of what I think the political system should be about is trying new ideas, looking at problems and trying to solve them. And we might not solve the problem the first time around. We might even make things worse. So we must try different things. There's no perfect political system. And as an anarchist, I've never met or read about a government that I liked. But... Uh, Marx yeah. had said this, and I'm not a Marxist, and I'm, I think a lot of Marxists think that violent revolution is the only way. I think that's kind of how Lenin and the Bolsheviks went about it in the early 1900s. I oppose that. I'm not, I'm not a Stalinist. I'm not a Leninist. I'm not a Marxist. I'm an anarchist. So, uh, but Marx had said um, that the proletariat have nothing to lose but our chains. That's what he said in the 1800s, back in the 19th century. But... You had alluded to a lot of a lot of things today. We have a lot of privilege. We have a lot of nice technology. We have cushy lives. We have a lot of leisure time. We have a whole lot more than just our chains to lose now, don't we, Mike? Uh, we do, but I mean, I guess like that's why I don't necessarily think political and self or social philosophies pre-nuclear world, pre-internet world really pre-trans globally connected world really matter that much i mean there's stuff you can certainly find in them to take and use stuff you can learn from stuff to build on but like that's where i think philosophy needs to be practiced and live like we should be coming up with better ways to live and to handle the challenges and trials of our times we're we're in a new era now that we're in the nuclear age aren't we a lot has changed since uh, 1945 yeah since 1945 a lot has changed um but like that's where I, I going back to like absurdity to me like we were born and nukes have been around forever and I think you know depending on how old you are you might remember like some of the end of the Cold War and it's like oh nukes are just pointing at us at all times at any moment all of us could die and all it takes is someone who we have no ability to affect just deciding it's time and so like once you like learn about that fact in in this world and you're sitting there, like I could just die at any time out of my control. And it's not from natural things anymore. It's from man and not just collections of men. It could be a man. Um, now, granted, like I, I doubt like any man in a government, single person can fire off a nuke that has access to him now, except maybe North Korea. But like you think about terrorist organizations and stuff like that, getting nukes, they have less discretion of who gets to decide to use it and when. Um, so it's just like one of those things is like, like if you think about it every day, you, you have a reason to live in fear if you want one, but uh, we choose to go on anyway and not live in fear and demand all the nukes get removed from this earth. So I don't know. I, I, our, our response to it as humans has been very much, well, as long as my team has it, I think I'm okay with it because if all teams have them, we won't use them. So um, I think the global international system, the political system and the economic system is run by psychopaths, and my example would be uh, the United States alone has enough nukes to destroy the world and make it unlivable ten times over. You know, I think a hundred nukes, give or take, would be enough to destroy the possibility of life for mankind. Um, and now we have other uh, nuclear nations that have maybe not quite as many as the United States, but a whole lot. I know Russia has thousands uh, of nuclear missiles as well. 
So what's the point? Why why would we need more than one or two or a hundred? Um, why do we live in a system uh, that allows a hegemony and a autocrat, someone at the top of the political system, to have power, or or maybe a group of people to have power over destroying not only um, life on another country, but life in the entire planet with the push of a button? Why why? Why do you think the system is structured this way? And uh, I, I I don't see any purpose for it. Like, there's no... It's not defensive. For the United States to have a thousand plus nuclear missiles has absolutely nothing to do with defense. Nothing. Uh, if we're hit by a uh, hundred nuclear missiles from Russia, it's all over. So I think the purpose to have a um, thousand nuclear missiles is imperialism, is uh, to run America as the number one military in the world. We outspend almost the rest of the world combined on military. We have, that's our strategic advantage. It's military force. We run the world. The hegemony is controlled by the United States. Of course, there's other powerful nations, but the United States is most powerful. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why we have so many nukes, we have to be number one in military. We have to be, we have to have the most nukes. We have to have the most technological advances in those nukes. We must be, we must uh, nuclear, or we must nuclearize and militarize space. We must be able to uh, have these nuclear missiles in satellite, in orbit, and we must be able to hit any target uh, on Earth without, uh, with the push of a button. Uh, I just think it's psychopathic. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I, th- I think. Like, if you brought, say, a bean from another planet and beamed them down to Earth right now and showed them the condition that people are living in, they'd be like, whoa. Like, what is wrong with the people of the world that they allow this? What's wrong with our leadership? Well, yeah. But, and then, like, that's where, like, knowing some history, I think, can be beneficial. History, knowing a lot of history is really about ego, too, and about trying to, like, outdo someone else in what you know in history. Um, It's interesting, at least to me, anyway. But like knowing some of the history, right? Like it started from a place of fear, at least, or at yes. least like the proliferation, right? All like, right-wing political philosophy or ideology and dogma start with fear. You know, fear thy yeah. neighbor. And then and the I best think, they could come up with was mutually assured destruction, right? Or like, or was that pre-game theory? It was mutually yeah. assured destruction. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great point. Mutually um, assured destruction. So that that's was awesome. A philosophy that governments or leaderships force people to live under when this technology that could kill us all first showed up. Yeah, we didn't democratically choose this. We never had a vote on, should we have a thousand and one nukes? Should we have one nuke? We, th- these nuclear yeah. policies were forced on us, and they're uh, inherently undemocratic. No one yeah. wants to live in a world that can be destroyed with the push of a, a button a few times or a few hundred times, you know? So, yeah, yeah I... So- like I, I don't know though like if the people in charge right now think of themselves as like psychopaths because a lot of them are like oh i've inherited this situ- i've inherited this don't. situation because I, I don't think that's like all of them are like i think of myself like if you elected me president tomorrow and sent me in there like hey are you gonna get rid of all nukes today I'm like certainly not because there's still too many too much evil and uncertainty in this world that like at least I, that's why I think I buy into the fear too. It's like, oh, do we really want to be the first nation that gives up all nukes? What if, what if? Well, there's a lot the of nations that are going to have nuclear capabilities. Yeah, so, what if I all mean, the ones that have nukes agree the second America gives them up, we'll all just launch them at America and then we'll have a world without America. I, great. I, again, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see that threat. I don't think that as soon as we give up our nukes, I mean, are we, are we launching our nukes at, um, 
I don't know I, what's a what's a nuclear nation that doesn't have uh, what's a what's a nation in our hemisphere? Uh, Cuba doesn't have any nukes, or we, they don't have any nukes. You know, obviously we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, but we're not saying oh they don't have any nukes. Let's just fire fire at them. You know, I I don't see that thought process. Oh, like yeah, I, that I think America exists for us as Americans, but do you think, think about all the countries we, we've invaded? Like you, you think, think that, that all uh, of those countries don't want any retribution the second we disarm ourselves? Like I, you might I do be not right. Think... I'm just saying I think this is where fear comes from in people. Right. Like they're I don't thinking think these that. I don't think America is a nuclear target the second we give up our nukes. I think if we destroyed them all tomorrow, which is, I guess I want to believe I would do the right thing if I was ever president. And if I was ever president, someone to get me in office would have to be a bottom up revolution because I'm not part of the system. I'm a, I'm an outsider. And I think that uh, outsiders and politicians generally, there's a system in place. There's only limited uh, things you can do when you're in power. Like, I don't think that revolution is possible just because one slightly leftist leaning leader or whatever becomes president. But yeah, I think that I would, I would like to see if I was ever president, what I might do, at least I think I would do would be to get rid of the newts day one in office, get rid of them. Not first start with end nuclear proliferation, which we could be um, the leaders to get all nations to sign, including Israel to stop the proliferation of the nukes. And I think to get rid of all the old nukes, I think um, Russia uh, would want to do that. I mean, why, why would, if, if we, we would have to agree and have some sort of international treaty where we all get together and say, we're not going to make new nukes. And over time, at least if, if we just agree to that over time, they're, they're not, they don't stay uh, online forever. Like I think they have a shelf life. Um, so over time, if there's no more nuclear proliferation and it's led by the United States, Eventually, there won't be any nukes, and I do not subscribe to some right-wing ideology that the day America announces to the rest of the world that we got rid of all of our nukes, we're a sitting target. I think the same. Well, that's reason- not an ideology. First of all, that's that's a like a belief that a belief, sure, whatever. Hold it could be a, one part of an but ideology, but that's. that's I've heard a lot of people say this. I've talked to a lot of people about nuclear um, policy, and they all say, you know, I wouldn't give it up because I, I think we're going to be a target the second we do. And I just don't believe that. I could be wrong, uh, but I just don't see it that way. I think if the world is going to be a nuclear-free and safer world that we all would want to live in, we don't wanna, why would we want to keep living in, a nu- in the nuclear age where we could all be wiped out with the push of a few buttons? Um, I think the, the United States, uh, which leads the global hegemony, We'll have to lead the way in nuclear and ending nuclear proliferation and potentially ending nuclear weapon technology um, as it exists today. But I think the, the one thing about nuclear technology, and we had talked about energy too, well, well, if you have nuclear energy, if you study nuclear energy, you're not too far away from nuclear bomb, you know, and I think that there might be some benefit to having nuclear energy in the short run while we try to develop renewable energies and green technologies. So... It's tough. These are these are tough issues, you know, and I don't see either of us in the White House. But what do you think about just generally my nuclear policy day one as president? And what do you think about nuclear energy uh, as a as a maybe a short term, uh, you know, resource until maybe more renewable energies and green technologies are scaled up? Well, one of the things I think first day president, both of us would need to do if we don't already know is make sure that the president has the authority to get rid of all the nukes. I don't know if that's just him or if Congress and the inactive of Congress to do that or not. But I, I think like just from my observations and having lived in this world for, I don't know, three plus decades now, um, 
you somehow get rid of all of America's nuclear weapons. Um, and I think instantly that's a safer world. Instantly. That's a safer world. Less nukes in the world, is, it's instantly a safer world. It but might I want be to a see... safer world. I just don't think that anybody with that goal is going to get, or enough people with that goal are going to get into enough positions of power, whether it's in Congress as a majority or in the executive branch as president. I agree. To make that policy. I agree with you. And I do think, depending on what time in history it happens and where the other world powers are in their technological development, there's a very good chance that they don't necessarily attack us with nukes, but once the nukes are gone, a lot of things change with how those countries interact with us. So, so let's talk about this. I mean, the United States is the only country to ever use nuclear uh, weapons in war. Yeah. So why we are the only ones to use it. Why, why would we assume other countries would use them against us? It's never been done. It's only been done one time and we're the only country to do it. So what are we so scared of? We're the, we're the, we're the only country. Cause I don't know if I was Iran, I'd use it against the United States when they gave up all their nukes. What about all back. the innocent people, though? I mean, what about all the no, innocent people? They're not people? innocent, they're infidels. Don't you know about the religious, the fervor with which they take certain religious beliefs? I'm, I'm, I don't have like an anti, I, 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 don't, I don't have like an anti-Muslim, uh, you know, viewpoint or anything like that. Like, I, I think that no, the people not, in power. No, anti-Muslim viewpoint. I think people in power in this There's some people in power in the Muslim people. world that, that don't have a positive view of the United States. But that doesn't yeah, necessarily I think the people in this country this. are afried of those people choosing to do something and having the will to carry it out. Now, I, I don't think it's a lot of, like, I think it's very few people in very, like maybe some of them are in power that are, are extremists that would want to do something like that or view us as infidels. But I think that's the fear that like people in leadership here are like, well, if there's one, then we can never, like if there's one person out there or one country that has that power that could be like a threat to us, we can never give our nukes. And in my head, I'm like, how do we convince those type of people to, in our own country, in our own leadership, to want to give up news. Like, how do you get that fear out of them? I don't have any, I'm not, the, the people of Iran are not my enemy. You know, the people of Cuba are not my enemy. Potentially their, their governments, you know, might be, but definitely not the people, you know. And I think that when you're talking nuclear war, you're not wiping out government, although that might be one of the things that would happen, but you're killing hundreds of thousands, if not more innocent people. And that would be my biggest um that would be my biggest concern, you know, and again, if I had nuclear, I think the worst thing, that, one of the worst things that's ever been done, I would say probably the Nazi industrialized killing. Uh, and I would say second after that would be nuclear war, potentially. I mean, I, I don't think you can kind of c- compare genocide and, and um, you know, these types of extreme forms of violence or, or rape them or scale them or anything like that. But uh, Nazis and their industrialized killing during World War Two and the end of World War Two putting us into the nuclear age um, or to the worst. So I think when you're studying history, it's hard to be an optimist when looking at the 20th century. I mean, it was a pretty dark period in time when you say. Yeah. And that's all, that's all humans with fears and desires and egos that were participating in and driving those actions. So why do you have hope that they're not just going to keep doing it? So we both watched Oppenheimer. So why don't we finish up with the last maybe fifteen or so minutes on the show to discuss Oppenheimer? What did you? What did, as, as just a film and as a, as a movie? What did you think of it? 
Oh, I think it was a very long movie. It was cinematically, it was really, a lot of scenes were really beautiful. Um, the way they were shot or like really awesome. The score was great. The music and it was really kind of, I was, I was getting there. You can let me speak a little. I'll get there. Mr. MC square. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I love the score at times. It was like very intense and it like brought you into the moment and got your emotions heightened. I thought the acting was phenomenal. Uh, like just really well done. The star, um, the, star, the star of the film was awesome. He, I mean, I don't uh, study a little bit of Oppenheimer, not much, but I thought he did. Uh, Cillian, Cillian yeah. Murphy. Great job. He did a great job. He did a great job. Everyone did. Even side characters did a good job. I, like they had, uh, I think Rami Malek as a side character. And it's just like, he did a good job. But he's only in there for like one minute total of screen time. I think. I love the Einstein's part. I really liked the the part at the end and Einstein in general, MC squared, my namesake, uh, big, big fan of Einstein. I think he brought a little wisdom. He didn't get much screen time either, but he said that basically, you know, they're going to use you up. And once they can no longer use you, you're, you're no, you're no, of no value. They're going to cast you aside. And he also said that, you know, you're going to, you're going to get up on stage and accept awards and receive praise but you're not there to be praised. It's for the other people to praise themselves or something along those lines. Like you're, they're there praising themselves, not you, you know, they're trying to congratulate themselves. Um, and I, I just thought that uh, that was really interesting because the minute um, the nuclear weapon was um, developed, Oppenheimer was of no use to the military industrial complex anymore. Yeah, I mean, once he stepped out of line with wanting to just keep building more and bigger and better in perpetuity, seemed uh, he ran afoul. Um, and it, yeah, like the movie, it, it was really like a kind of like a biopic, but it was like somehow three hours long, but like never felt like scenes had enough time to like grow to get you really invested. It was like, boom, hit this, hit this, hit this. Let's go, let's go, let's move. That's, that's how I feel like all of Christopher Nolan movies are. Uh, it's really hard to follow. It's a lot of intense music and they don't really go too deep into storytelling. You try to pick up as much as you can. Um, and I'm not a yeah. critic by any means, but some of his movies are, are at times hard to follow. Like I don't have the attention span to watch every scene for three hours intensively. So I think along the way I miss some stuff for sure. As if I'm sure everyone has. I, I think, yeah, like it's decent, but like, I don't know. It, seemed, it felt like it couldn't decide if it wanted to be a biopic or try to give like a historical insight into what was happening at Los Alamos and how the bomb came to be. And it didn't give me enough of Oppenheimer and him and his struggle as a man. Like they showed hints of like his problems with his wife and his infidelity and like problems with other staff and faculty, but they didn't get into a lot of like giving you what he thought about it or how he felt about it or like what his emotion was like. It seemed like they just defaulted to like images of whatever was in his mind maybe sometimes so like and and it, it does like it hints at and gets around some of like like those people trying to address the questions at the time like should we be doing this why and stuff and it really tries to tell you like they needed to do this because they had to and here's the reasons that and they put it in the movie and it's not really meant to make you think it's more of meant to tell you this is the story we want you to know about this so what do you think about Truman? Uh, was he a war criminal for dropping two nuclear weapons? Uh, Should he have been tried as a war criminal just like the Nazis were in Nuremberg for dropping a nuclear missile, essentially unprovoked? I mean, the United States uh, mainland was not under attack. We were on the offensive in the Pacific. No. 
I don't. I, th- so. I say yes. I think Zombie, if, if you, yes. For me, it was I'd say yes. if you, like, if we go to your like anarcho syndicalism and pretend that every country is its own anarcho syndicalism that organized and set itself we don't off. Have countries, we're getting rid of them. Maybe right, like, whatever. So we're we're the United States of anarcho syndicalisms in the United States. Region. Is just, it's some and dirt. Japanese. It's dirt and land. That's all it is. I'm trying to like use this to make an example, bud. Like, there's like Japan attacked us. We might have let them. Our leadership might have let that happen or orchestrated to get that to happen. But they attacked us, and so but it was provoked. I don't know. We had if, talked if they, about. If they had so said, "Hey, provoked. you know what? We give up. We're going to stop fighting," like, and just came to us and surrendered, or said, "We're done. We give up." Why? Why uh-huh. must we force a surrender? Why couldn't we say, "Let's come to peace terms. Let's use diplomacy"? Why was it that the United States had to win? Japan had to lose. That's the only reason the nukes were dropped. Because the United States had to win. The United States had to dominate the world, including the global Pacific. The, the bombs were not dropped out of morality. The, drop, the bombs were dropped because of power. And I think it was a war crime. I mean, innocent citizens were um, killed and maybe millions um, over... Innocent, over innocent citizens that allowed a vicious, brutal, uncaring empire to rise and out, out of China and go to other people's homes and conquer and rape and kill and pillage and do all sorts of horrors everywhere. A populace that allowed that, supported that, and wanted that. And I don't I don't, agree with that. War. I don't know if we have polls on the on the on the people. I don't, how much they, Japanese history have you read like do you know history of World War Two pre Japan like I don't know much pre Japan World War Two history. I, yeah, Japan was a very violent country, but the United States is a very, very violent country right now, you know. So yeah, right. So I'm saying I wouldn't try Truman as true. a, I wouldn't try Truman as a war criminal. He just dropped a bigger bomb. So I have a more, I have a more outlandish claim. I think that the people working on the Manhattan Project could be considered war criminals. I mean, for example, we tried Nazi concentration camp guards, you know, in the, in the, essentially in the Nazi. Uh, concentration camp system. We've been trying them and still continue to try. Um, we, I say, people of the world, I guess, you know, trying to get justice. Um, you know, I don't think there's ever a shelf life, I guess, on justice. But I, I do think there can be a society without jails and certainly without the death penalty. So I'm not sure how I feel about putting a nine-year-old ex-concentration camp guard in prison. Um, but nonetheless, we continue to try, you know, these people that were um, uh, that were uh, we're, I guess we're uh, claiming guilt, you know, for some of the Nazi war crimes that they committed. So why not, if we're going to do that, why not hold the people and the scientists accountable for that nuclear missile? Why not hold all the people involved in the Manhattan Project and try them as war criminals if they're still alive? What do you think about that? I don't, I disagree. I wouldn't try them as war criminals. Um, nuclear weapon. I mean, can a nuclear weapon be used for good? They knew what they were doing. They knew that the consequences of the bomb, if it ever got dropped, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, so, so when people I, who when work I on pharmaceuticals, right? Like, like say you're working on pharmaceuticals and you're trying to make a better drug, but then you make a drug that kills ninety five percent of the population. I mean, well, that's why we have standards in is place. Is that a war criminal? Like, well, that would depend on if it's used at a time of war or if it's just used. That could just be a. Well, yeah, uh, they were developing it because they were being attacked by another group of people unprovoked, and then that group was attacking them. So they started trying to develop it to defend themselves, and it got out of hand. I think the, them as war criminals. I think that the U.S. Let's get back to the new World War II here. I think that the U.S. war efforts in the Pacific were was a war of aggression, and we were uh, 
the, as United States citizens because we're Americans. The, the reason that we continued the war up into the Japanese mainland and the reason why we dropped the nuclear missiles killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of civilians over the decades after the bomb was dropped was a crime, was a war crime and an act of aggression because the United States and its leadership wanted to rule the world. We did not want a world that was, there, you know. What's your evidence that they wanted to rule the world? Like, I haven't read a lot about. Because after the war, the they room. did. Because after the war, they did rule the world. At the time, at the end of the World War II, the United States had a fraction of the world's population, maybe less than 20%, and yet half the world's wealth. So, and the United States uh, transnational corporations still do. I mean, the United States is, was at the pinnacle of the global hegemony. So yeah, that's yeah, my evidence. We did rule the world, the United States, yeah, after dropping like, that bomb. We wanted to knock out Japan, which was potentially a rival and a superpower. And we didn't want to share the Pacific region with, with Japan. So it was an act of military aggression to drop those nuclear missiles. And why I think Truman and potentially even the people working on the Manhattan Project were war criminals. Okay, let's Quite let's possibly. get to this tweet. I, I want to get to this hold on, tweet. Hold on, hold on a second. I, I'd like, I, I wanted to talk about it. Like, I, I don't – like, I, I agree you could think – there's ways you could think of them as war criminals. Like, and I certainly know that you do. I just want the thought out there. I just want yeah, the like, thought I, out I don't, there. I'm not necessarily I don't saying think I believe this. I definitely on, think Truman was a war criminal. I don't know yeah, about and, the Manhattan well, think, Project. Yeah, but like when you talk about like we were the aggressors and like we were doing it because we were trying to rule the world. That's the way I see um, it. One yes. of the things I look at is well, all these countries were trying to rule the world, and a lot of them had turns Country doing would. it, and a lot of Every them had. Every country would. Yeah, but like, like so, like you're so angry at America and what we did. But if you look at all the other countries who had take turns being the leader or rule of the if world, if they had that power, years they before probably that, would have too. they were all terrible at it. And if, they did if, horrible things. Like the last leaders of the world were Japan, the Nazis, Britain, France, and Russia. And they got into the huge wars. And it just ended. We ended it with a nuclear weapon. Uh, yeah, I, I can see why some people in leadership, like their philosophy was, well, we have to seize control and take control of the world. If we don't take control, somebody as bad as the Nazis could do it. It was about power. It was not yeah, about exactly, morality. exactly. It's about power. So that's aggression. That's aggression. I mean, the, the Japan was not threatening U.S. borders at the time the nuclear missile the was Soviets dropped. were building bombs, though. The Soviets were building bombs. That's how the cold. That's exactly what the Cold War was about. I think. You know, yeah, they're supposed to be communists, though. They're supposed to all want to live together and not under tyranny and not want to have nukes over their heads. So why would like? Why did their society decide to build bombs? They could have done the bigger thing and decided not to do it. So I want to read this tweet. This is by Alyssa Lynn Valdez, MS, on Twitter. Apparently she has a master's degree. I think she looked up her account. I think she's in New Mexico. But anyways, let's read a couple of these tweets here. Can't wait for the Oppenheimer buzz to die. The bomb those men built. They dropped it in New Mexico to test it on my mother. She was 18 months old in the fallout zone. Of the 21 girls in her high school class, 17 had leukemia. Tell Hollywood that effing story. Okay. This quote, another one, New York Times Oppenheimer film. He deserved director of clandestine's weapon lab built near desolate stretch of Los Alamos, New Mexico. It was, and this is what she said, inhabited by Espanos. They were given less than 24 hours to leave. Their farms were bulldozed. Many of those families had 
been on that land for centuries. Oppenheimer's crew literally shot all the livestock through the head and bulldozed them. People fled on foot with nowhere to go. Land rich, money poor. Their land seized by the government. So that's authoritarian exercise of government. All of the Hispanic New Mexico men who were displaced by the labs later were hired to work with Belirium by Oppenheimer. The white men got protective gear. The Hispanic men did not. The Hispanic men all died by barioliosis. Not sure what that is. Sounds terrible. These were U.S. citizens, folks. Their land taken, animals killed, farm bulldozed, forced to work for the people who took everything from them and killed those people. My mother lived on a farm 87 miles from ground zero. The day the bomb was detonated, there was a monsoon of storms and winds that carried the mushroom cloud over her town and rained. Her milk was from their cow, well water, gardens, veggies. Her life was ruined at 18 months old. But no, we want films about complex and troubled, heroic, in quotes, white men who conducted their genius in virtually unpopulated place, another in quotes. These were all lies. This is mythology in service to white supremacy and the military-industrial complex masquerading as nuanced. Uh, And then final tweet here, because of those labs, local Espanol people in northern New Mexico, our communities now have the highest rates of heroin overdoses in the nation. Generational trauma and forced poverty is outrageous. We need the real stories of Oppenheimer to be be told. The end. Uh, I didn't fact check this information. Um, I looked it up on a Reddit feed. Uh, Seems to check out, though, um, from what I've read. Uh, It doesn't surprise me. If you know history of the United States government, this doesn't sound like it's something um, that they wouldn't do. So I'm going to assume all that stuff is true. Uh, And if it is, what do you think about it? I mean, it's a a shame they chose to do it that way. I don't think they should have when they were looking for a test site. But it's not news. Our government's done it before. It's not something that should really affect us. We didn't do it. None of no one we're related to did it. No one alive having a conversation about what happened did it or had it happen to them like it, it's shitty really that we would do that to people and that people have to live through the fall and like our government's done it to the citizens of our country numerous times like there's other examples this is um, governments so are like, power centers like, but, yeah and here's but here's the thing like no matter what we want history to be we don't get to control it especially after we're dead especially a couple hundred years down the line it all becomes revisionist at certain points we got to talk about it though we got to we got to yeah, bring awareness exactly. to it so and, like and we gotta we gotta learn from is, it. Like in a thousand years, th- like today, this point's still relevant and still like we should be reminded like they did a lot of immoral things to achieve like w- this thing that protected us or whatever your view of it is. Or I don't think it was protection at all for imperialism. It was a weapon way. of imperialism. That's the way I see the nuclear missiles. There you go. There you go. It didn't protect me or my family or anyone I knew at the time. What it did do is kill a lot of innocent people. But yeah. um, that's but why like, a thousand years from now, they're going to remember bomb Oppenheimer, maybe Los Alamos, maybe Truman at all. Make, make, they'll still have some digital history that's written down and stuff. But like citizens then, what they need to learn about and what they need to know to operate in their life a thousand years from now probably isn't going to care too much about this. So like it's still relevant to us humans now as we live, but it won't be relevant to human society in a couple hundred years. Almost nothing from a hundred years before it is. Can nuclear missiles, I think I usually hold the view that uh, technology is neutral, but as it relates to nuclear missiles, I don't think there's 
any way to use a nuclear missile for it to be neutral, or I guess necessarily for it to be positive or a, a good. Can nuclear whis- missiles be used for good? Uh, I think some people have proposed things you can do with for good. I would challenge anybody to come up with a non-nuclear weapon solution to try to achieve that same goal or result. Like I've heard like, Oh, launching them in the space at deep range yeah. comets or whatever. I talked like, about we can blow that. Yeah. And stop them. It's like, cool. Like, like, is there anything better we can do that doesn't involve nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction? And they do like, they did that thing where they slammed an object into the one asteroid and changed its trajectory by just a few whatever millimeters or centimeters or whatever but like if you do that over a course of time with something you know is coming near you and you push it out of the way of earth well before it gets here it's like cool well now you did it without nukes apparently so like that that's great like i would prefer if we didn't have to have nuclear weapons uh even if there is some good cases or some cases of positive benefit to them let's end with some science and philosophy talk science philosophy the universe You've worked a little bit with AI. What's what's artificial intelligence and what's what's its use for humanity? Uh, well, there's a whole plethora of uses people are going to come up with that you can use artificial intelligence for. I think like some people are going to use them to help predict and sequence genomes that we haven't yet for species. It's, it's like one example. Um, I think when you get enough of them good enough trying to like play in the stock market they can create patterns and kind of take that stochastic process into something more predictable and so maybe this way the stock market changes or how you can invest gets limited by ai there's just there's so many possibilities they can do with ai and i'm so limited by like what i know and what i'm interested in that how i view ai that you know you need to talk to 10 people working with AI in 10 different ways to really start getting a view of how comprehensive this is going to change our lives. I think our lives are on course to change. What of the course of humanity and of the world? Where, where are we heading? What's, what what do you think the future is going to look like? Uh, Do we have a future? I mean, we have, we're in the nuclear age. We're in the age of mass extinction and climate crisis. If we are able to hold on here and maybe address those two existential issues, what, what's in it for the future of humanity what what do you see i love science fiction stuff you know interstellar travel um you know wormholes uh traveling into the future or back into the past all that kind of science fiction stuff what do you think you know sitting here today 2023 what's the world gonna look like in 50 years maybe 100 years what types of technologies might be available I'd say it beats me when it comes to technologies that will be available in 100 years. But I'm, I'm hopeful that in 100 years, you're going to have AIs that are truly uh, intelligence that are surpassing and thinking in different ways than human intelligence. Um, especially if you build AIs out of different, um, you know, base metals to start with and carbon and stuff like um, But yeah, I, I, humans could expand and travel the the universe and traveled from planet to planet and stuff but unless we invent some like crazy technology that makes every planet just like earth once that ship of humans leaves earth they're going to spawn a new species on some other planet because the radiation and space travel and getting there it's just going to change their dna enough so like if i like when i think about the future seriously like humans can spread throughout our solar system once you start going beyond that 
we're essentially creating new species and that's all another philosophical problem. Should we be doing that? Um, but it's fun to think about. I love sci-fi too, man. Like I, I hope that we have some, like we find a wormhole behind Saturn that unlocks ways to travel to the multiverse. Like that'd be a, a crazy thing to happen. And I'd be for it if there was, if there was ways for it to be done, but who knows what we're going to find. What out do you think about the theory of wormholes? Does it help connect different parts of the universe? If you go in a black hole past the event horizon, uh, assuming you're able to survive, which might be a tall order, um, do you think you, these wormholes connect uh, the black holes? Do you think it's some sort of... Well, uh, you don't survive. You, you pass no? Through, no, you pass into the black hole one atom at a time is my understanding. And you, and what about how do you come, how do you come out of it? Uh, as radiation in a couple billion years. That's what I That's might think too. Yeah. Isn't that what Hawking said? Isn't that what Hawking radiation I'm, I is? Got, I actually have a couple of his books. I'm looking to get into it. Um, obviously, some of this stuff is way beyond my level of understanding oh, of science. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I, I don't think that there's any other way for interstellar travel. I think the Milky Way is over 100 um, million light years across. So we're never going to be able to travel at the speed of light anyways, because I think only massless uh, electrons, um, you know, massless particles essentially can travel at the speed of light. So a human being, it's not going to be possible. So I don't think we're ever going to you know, leave our galaxy and maybe never our solar system. And he had mentioned, you know, traveling to other planets, uh, we're going to have to make it livable for human beings. I think it'd be a whole lot harder to ter- terraform another planet than it would be to protect uh, Earth, the the amazing planet that we have now, and that's why the environmental crisis is um, such an important issue for me because I think we have a great place here, you know, where we live right now, and I don't really want to leave anytime soon. And the way I see the billionaire space race is, if they're able to go to Mars and terraform it, I don't think they're going to bring us with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So good riddance to them. I hope they go and never come I, back. Well, I, yeah, you. I think they'd have to truly terraform it create some atmosphere and some gravity or they're going to die of radiation. Like we don't, we don't know. Can a human live for 30 years in one six gravity and still be human? Like we know a guy survived in space in low gravity for one year. Right. Yeah. And it's going to drastically decrease. Yeah. It decreases our functional strength and even our body mass and our bone density. So it does a lot of, you know, things to us. And then imagine generations in that type of, uh, I think you're, you're not thinking capitalistic enough. I think these billionaires are going, want to get to Mars to get rights for whatever they're going to be able to find on Mars minerals. No doubt. They're going to commoditize it. No question. Yeah. Commoditize it. Um, so what, what about the political system? How, how, how might you see the political system? I told you my views in syndicalism seem like it's the best description of a world that I'd like to live in. In 50 or 100 years, do you want to see these big nation states around, these nuclear powers, these governments that we've become so used to knowing, um, the borders and all that kind of stuff? Uh, what do you see for the political system? Uh, and do you have a political philosophy or... Uh, maybe a political area of political science that you gravitate towards. You, you you call yourself a contrarian, so maybe it'd be good for you to say what that means, and maybe tell me about your political influences, just generally, if you could sub them up, if that's possible. Yeah, I I don't think that I have strong political leanings one way or the other when it comes to like the groups or labels I associate with or that I understand myself to be a part of. I uh, I think I approach politics maybe too literally, where like I look at it on each individual issue that I know about that government has a right to decide stuff about 
and go like, well, how do I th- feel about that? Uh, so you just said something here. About Government decides something about, you know what I mean? Someone in power though. That's, that's, I think what I oppose. I like democratic, uh, solutions we all come together and decide it not rulers deciding problems and and that sort of thing but people coming together and solving them collectively i'm not saying i like them saying like what i see going on that's exactly the way i see it too you know exactly the way i see it Um, yeah so like i felt like disenfranchised a lot yeah like like yeah like uh we don't really get to pick who our representative electors are so we get one or another bad choice and we pick the least bad (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and like like a company I worked for, they used to send out like here's all the candidates that whose campaigns we're buying and paying for and getting them to vote our way, and it split fifty fifty down the Republican and Democrat line who they're who they're buying essentially who they're buying influence with. Um, so like, to, like things like that just have made it really hard for me to want to get invested, like because I don't believe in I, I say I wouldn't need, every ideology. I've looked at when you lay out like beliefs of Republican conservatism, like the more traditional style of Republicanism. Um, like it's like, Oh, I agree with less than 50% of that. You thought like liberal democratic, some of the ideology that they're trying to push now. It's like, Oh, I kind of agree less than 50% of that. So it's like, like, where do I fit in? And it's like, I hear a lot of people, um, I guess from like the millennial generation and younger saying like, I, I'm not Republican or Democrat. Like I'm an issues voter or like, I don't know how to identify, and I feel like I kind of fit in with them. And but I see I'm less optimistic than you. Like, like I think you have a vision for what you want. I'm kind of like I don't know if there's going to be nations in a hundred years, I, and I don't really. I hope there's a lot more freedoms for people and a lot more, uh, I guess, protections and social safety nets we gift ourselves as people. So uh, the way I see it, that's why I kind of view anarchism as the best way to describe me. I definitely don't find a home in the Republican Party in the United States, nor the Democratic Party. I've always fancied myself an independent, slightly left-leaning independent, but now I've kind of been radicalized. But neither of the two mainstream parties in the U.S. appeal to me. Uh, I think the way I see it, we have one party in the United States. That's a business party. But um, is there anything you want to get to? Um, I got a couple of things written down. Maybe we'll pick one of these topics. Meaning of life stuff. You want to go there? How about the structure of the media? Are you any interest in talking about the structure of the media? And then the last thing here, I have like the banking system. Let's, let's, let's find one more topic. I'll let you choose. Meaning of life stuff. You want to talk about the media or do you want to go to the banking system, which you worked in for a while? Um, when I pick, are you going to ask me a question in one of these three topics? Your show. This is your show. This is the Ryle show. Where are we going? Where, how are we going to finish this up? Maybe five, 10 Four. more minutes max. Let's finish this up. Let's, let's take this baby. Uh, let's take this baby home. You pick. You're, you're the host. Yeah. Go ahead. One of the things I think about banking and like the money supply is like everyone, I this guy bet. has 10 years in the big banking industry, right? Is that right? Riles? I, uh, well, mm, 12 plus years in working in big banking IT and uh, some light in management. <laughs> I've, I've, I've crept my way into management. They let me up there. Um, yeah, I would say like one of the things about like big banking that is just like such cognitive distance. Let me say something first here. He li- I've been to his house. It is enormous, people. For for you people out there listening, it is. You could play. You could you could get the whole Dallas Cowboys uh, stadium. I think inside this guy's home. It is enormous. Anyways, go ahead. 
Well, I do live where it's pretty cheap to get an enormous home when I bought it at the time. So I'm just going to put that out there. I'm just trying, I'm just blowing up your spot. I'm just being silly. But no, it's, it's the cognitive distance of like, like we are doing this great service for the public. And at the same time, like hating the public because like we can't steal more of their money to gamble with at the same time. This is coming from a banking insider. This is, this is probably the ideas that, that's debated. Yeah, in these and, big it's, and it's not everybody. You'd be surprised how many people in the leadership levels of banking. Now, granted, I don't really ever interact with the C-suite, but I'm talking about like managing director levels and, and uh, executive directors. Like you'd be surprised how many people are just trying to like do a job, just trying to do a job well and thinking like it's a job that is needed by our society. And like, they never even get into like, well, how does banking truly work? And what is our company truly doing? And they don't want to, they kind of get like angry if you make it about anything other than the job and the team they're on right now. Like if you make it about the larger corporate bank that we are. And I've just over the years come to like, I, I liked a lot of the work I got to do. And a lot of the projects we worked on were, were trying to make things better for customers. Um, some like I, a couple of things I worked on that were marked, like we're doing this project, but we're not expecting to make any profits, the right thing to do for a customer. Like businesses shouldn't do that. Right. They should always be trying to make a better profit. But the, at a bank, we did that's, that. That's why I have a problem. That's what I have a problem with, though. The profit motive. Like I, that's right. why I'm that's, an anti-capitalist. I don't think that society should be structured around the profit motive. Right. But, and of but, course, but, in but, big banking, that's probably the only thing that matters. Right, and that like that's where the problem really starts to occur. Right, is um, like banks don't generate GDP. So the more and more total like amount of money your banks are pulling in um, or that is running through like the banking, I guess, system. This is Reagan. This goes back to Reagan. The financial system was deregulated. Now money is created on a spreadsheet. It never even goes into circulation. There's $21 trillion right now unaccounted for. They get the money money. in circulation through the big banks. Like they've like here have an interest-free loan of $500 million or a billion dollars to get more cash in circulation. And in my head, I'm like, okay, but we're going to charge 5% when we loan that out. So so these banking firms have took over the entire economy. I think they're, I mean, they make billions. Or I think something like 20% I think 11%, of the economy. I think it's, it's 11% of GDP. Okay, I thought it was closer to 20. But, well, 11 is uh, a lot for a Sure, for, for, like sure. Like, it's not, it's not within GDP. Like, like the size of the banking they, sector they don't, is like they're, 11%. They're not making a product. I mean, they're just. Right, they're, they're not making a product. They're, they're they make money on. money. To make a profit, essentially. Right. No, but some banking needs do truly like exist if you want to like. We need money. Still right? have a currency. system of money. Right. We need, we so, need like, currency for. We need to circulate currency for uh, transactions and stuff. Right. It'd be a lot harder to go back to a bartering system where I give you some copper yeah. and I weigh it right. and say, right. okay, give me some food. For yeah. This, so. Right? So yeah. So like, if you're gonna make like say like I'm only allowed to make one change to current capitalism. And banking system, I'd be like, okay, the one change I'm making is all banks are owned by all of the citizens of the United States. I love that idea. It's just that's, total that's ownership it. by I the citizens it. only. Yeah. Any profits the bank pulls in, split amongst all citizens of the United States. I love it. Yeah, I think that would be good. Or People will maybe if I go in narco-syndicalism, why don't every region within the United States have its own bank? I mean, do we need one federal bank, one national bank, or maybe we could have smaller regional banks that focus on lending to people that need money to start local businesses and to buy homes. Are, are you suggesting more than one currency or just more than like 
I, yeah, I really don't know, and that's why maybe it might be good to get into some uh, cryptocurrency, and we'll finish with it. You know, kind of the decentralized, uh, oh, crypto, I, which no, I think no. is a scam. Which oh, I think yeah, before scam, we get into that, scam. the idea we're talking about decentralized currencies in theory. Yeah, I, 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 no one's smart enough to design society, but yeah, uh, I think it is nice to go to different regions of the United States, and yet the same money, you know, does does work there. You know, different all fifty states, the same money will apply. So we could have different banks. Um, in different regions that are locally owned or maybe owned by uh, you know, the communities that they operate in or the workers that work for them or a combination of both. Um, but, yeah, I think we probably will need currencies, you know, that uh, work in large regions throughout the world or at least you can have currency conversion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think some of the I think some of the things like we don't have to throw out the entire banking system. I've been radicalized, but I've subtly changed my views. I think when I was first radicalized, I was like, throw out everything. Get rid of the big banks. We don't even need money. But, um, you know, I think we're probably going to be needed for medium of exchange to buy different goods and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think that we don't need these giant financial transnationals. Um, I would definitely scale these banks down. But as it relates to currency, I mean, yeah, having uh, currency that's recognized by groups of people, people in different regions is, seems like a good thing. Um, currencies can be manipulated, which is a bad thing, especially when it's being used to make money for a select group of people, uh, a group of people that resides in a fraction of 1%, you know. But um, what do you think about cryptocurrency? I think it's a scam for the most part, but I do like at least the idea, idea in theory of decentralized currency. You've done a little bit more delved a little bit more into the crypto than I have. I got burned on some crypto maybe 10 years ago and I kind of, I kind of got out of it and I haven't really changed my views since. It's stupid and ego driven. Just like the only, the only currency that would make sense at all is one currency for the largest possible organization of people in a society you can get. Like, like there's financial corporations who like profit entirely off of, arbitrage like inefficiency in between markets of trying to exchange currency and goods across borders and goods across currencies and like just the just having one currency for the entire world or one currency for your entire nation kind of solves that problem so like whether it's a the bunch of different be, regional who's banks control or, of it though who's in control no, of that currency that's the question it's I would all fake anyway who's in control of money now in every nation whoever that nation decides or whoever seizes the power and prints it up it's all made up BS that we come up with as humans, right? It, it just whoever this in this country, it's the there Federal Reserve that, that prints it. It's a central bank. <laughs> I mean, economics. You know, rich people trying to justify their actions invent economics and then hand out Nobel prizes for it. That's right. Um, it's all made up. Like, I agree with you. That's it's, so like, unless it's like the sorry, I shouldn't say every Nobel prize guy for economics is bad. I haven't researched that. Like maybe they give it out to a guy who disproves a theory that sucked or something. Who knows? <laughs> but largely a lot of like the economic theory it's economic hypothesis and then what plays out is uh people use the levers of the government to take away any consequence of bad action that should have happened so it's, it's yeah. an ideology in, in subservience to wealth and power it's to justify the actions of rich people that's the way yeah, i see the back, state of economics yeah but back to like banking when you're saying like uh, like it could be a bunch of regional banks all trying to like make their different decisions set the different rates or decide different who they're going to lend to for different reasons. But I think you would still want like one central 
again, it can be direct democracy voted on by the people, but like agency or something that's in control to make sure there's enough cash. I don't want one central everyone. bank controlling the world's money supply. I do not want that at all. What if, but what if the way that bank operates is like every decision is democratic, right? Direct, yeah, Maybe. democratic vote. Like that's, I would dissolve it. I don't want one powerful bank. I don't want anything that's too big to fail. I'd rather have a decentralized okay, not, not a bank than banks. Like a treasury. Not, not and maybe all these and maybe all these banks get together a couple times a year to vote on international policy, but I definitely don't want one agency or one centralized, all-powerful bank that makes all the decisions top down. But yeah, if they, if this as long as it's democratically organized, I'm in support of it. Unlike the current banking system, which is absolutely not democratically organized, it's controlled by the same people that control all the other transnationals. And that's the fraction of 1% of society who owns all the shares. These, these corporations, yeah. these yeah. banks are traded on wall street. So whoever has the most shares has the most say in the policies of these banks. Yeah, that's true. What's the meaning of life? Oh, I thought we were done. <laughs> meaning uh, of life. The, the, well, there is no set meaning of life. There is no prescribed meaning of life. There was no arbiter that at least I've ever seen anyone providing compelling evidence they had access to and know that has created life for some purpose. What are you looking so, to gain here during your time on earth? I'm not looking to gain anything. I am hoping I do as little harm as possible to other people and that I'm able to create as much time for leisure and pleasure activities for myself as I can with the, God-given physical and mental talents or non-God-given. Like, I just want to, you know. A true hedonist kind of, you are, aren't you? Yeah, I, I put I put trying to find, well, it, I guess I hold two things, like a yin and yang. It's a hedonist, but also compassion. So I'm not, like, in pursuit of my hedonism, I'm trying not to cause harm to, harm to others. I'm trying to be mindful of their wills and their wishes and why, and like their motivations so that I can orient myself in a way where I live, where I don't do harm to a lot of people and I get to do a lot of things that I like to do and want to do. You describe yourself as a contrarian. What's that mean? Uh, well, contrarian is just a, it's my demeanor sometimes in conversation, how I think and what I choose to discuss. It's a, another way to say that might be asshole. But uh, in conversation, like when people are trying to present ideas and convince people why they should believe them or why they themselves live by it, I poke holes in it. I poke holes in it often and well, and I like to poke holes in it. And I poke holes in my own ideas, especially when uh, like I get them echoed back at me. And it's just good for reflection for me, but it can come off as quite asshole-ish where like most of the time it's genuine. I'm like, oh, like. Like, I want to know, like, how you arrive there because I can't see it. So educate me. You're a very Show curious me. person. You ask a lot of questions and then you like to think about it a little bit. You like to think it over. That's what I've learned from you, don't you? Yeah. Like, so many people want an answer right away or your best answer right away. I prefer I can give you something off the cuff. But if you let me think about it and stew on it, um, I could, you know, I'll have a better understanding of what I would want to do with that question or how I'd want to answer it, given my ability to review everything going on in my life and where I am. But, but yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. I do appreciate the opportunity to have some time to reflect and, and give a more thoughtful answer, especially when it's about, you know, a belief or a process that I do in my own life. You have, we have such, we have so limited time here on earth. I know you're 
kind of getting into music and guitar. How do you like to spend your free time as a hedonist? Um, yeah, like I, I play guitar for fun, um, poorly. I play video games with my brother and some friends a couple nights, like preset nights a week. I uh, golf whenever I can get a chance to golf. I uh, I like to get on Hacker Rank and uh, try to solve problems and compete. Um, trying to that that's like coding. Um, last or, last question here I have for you. You don't like labels. Uh, we got this on the pre-call. What about labels? Don't you like? And why don't you like to label yourself or maybe other people? Uh, I I feel like a like I don't know. Going back to like Quine, right? And some stuff that he said that resonated with me. It's like we don't always understand each other or the same, get the same meaning from a label or from a word. We don't internalize it the same, even though we might agree in general principles to like what that word could mean, but like, and how we, we don't have the same relationship to it. And we, so like, I don't know, like when I call myself uh, like a narcissist, like I think I'm a narcissist, but I, I tend not to express it outwardly. Like I feel it, I think it, but I don't know if it's control or I just like, I have other motivations that control my behavior, but like other people that I've said it to are like, Whoa, you, you narcissist. How? I don't see that in you. I'm like, no. just when I'm around you, I'm not that type of person, but it's, it's in my head. It's in my thoughts. And other people that like know me my whole life. Like, yeah, he's one of the most like egotistical narcissists you could meet on this planet. Uh, before we sign off here, is there anything you'd like to plug or any final thoughts you'd like to get out there to all the people listening to Necessary Illusions, all, all of our five listeners <laughs> that are listening to this conversation, all five of them. Is there uh, anything you'd like to say to them? Well, I, I certainly hope I get the chance to come back and talk to you again on here and, and get some more uh, of your thoughts and pick apart some philosophical ideas with you and, and test out our philosophies and compare them to each other. Um, but one of the things I, I think about a lot it, that I take people with is like, there's no like right true philosophy or system that would work for every single person on this planet in every situation. So like, as you go about trying to find uh, what your philosophy is going to be and how you're going to grow your philosophy and what processes work for you, um, it might not work for everyone. Um, so always be open to learning, always be open to sharing and listening um, to what others have to say. And uh, hopefully we can make this world a better place working together. Well said, my friend. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Have a good night. Thanks for having me. Bye. That's going to be a wrap for this episode of Necessary Illusions. I want to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my guest, Riles, for his time tonight. We had a great discussion on philosophy, science, politics, nuclear war, and the issues presented by the new Oppenheimer film, among other things. Check back for more episodes. Again, this is MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.